Today's sermon text comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you and amazed at who you are. Uh, help us today to be able to see and recognize clearly who you are, God, from your word, how you've revealed yourself to be. And help us to see not only who you are, but also what it is you offer us as your children. And help us to see the life, the hope, the peace that, that you offer us in your name. It helps to see the, um, the call that you have for each of us, the mission that you've given to each of us, uh, and the direction that we are to point our lives. God, help us to, to place Jesus as the target of our lives, to know him and to make him known. God, in and through our lives in every area, God, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, uh, God, help us to see that we are missionaries given this ministry of reconciliation to carry it into a lost and dying world. God, help us to know Jesus, make him known, and to find joy, satisfaction, and hope in him and in him alone. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Guys, again, welcome to The Grove. Uh, we are uh, excited as we're going to be starting a new sermon series uh, this week, uh, beginning to walk through the letters of First and Second Timothy. So this will be walking verse by verse through these two, these two letters, these two books, Throughout the rest of the year, this will get us all the way to Advent, actually, to Christmas. Um, so we'll be walking slowly through these two books. And so one of the things that marks us here at the Grove is we're expository preachers. What that means is that we do just this. We walk uh, verse by verse, book by book, word by word uh, through the Bible, believing it really is God's word. So we want to, in essence, just hold the microphone up to him and let him speak. Uh, we believe this really is alive and active. Um, and so we are beginning then this journey through these two letters. And so it was originally a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, his mentor, his disciple, young Timothy. Uh, and so we'll be looking at both of these together. They were written uh, a few years apart from one another, but both written later in Paul's ministry. Paul's probably in his uh, older 50s, early 60s. Timothy was probably in his 30s. He was a younger man. He was sent then to oversee and lead the church in Ephesus. So Paul's writing to his young mentor, uh, help giving him direction as Timothy's leading this church uh, in Ephesus. He does the same with his other uh, disciple, Titus, who's gone on to Crete. And so uh, there's another letter we have, the, the book of Titus. These three books, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, are often referred to as the pastoral epistles because Paul's writing here to these leaders, these pastors of these churches in Crete and in Ephesus. And so particularly as it's later in Paul's life, you hear, especially in 2 Timothy, well, the last letter we have from Paul, kind of the urgency that Paul feels as he knows his life is coming to an end. And so as we begin then this study here in 1 Timothy, if you've ever read through the Bible, read any of these uh, letters from Paul, it can be easy just to kind of gloss right over the introductions. 
right? It's like the, we've said it before, it's like the introduction to an email. You don't ever read it. It's always the same. Like, hey, how are you doing? Hope you had a great week. It's like, we all know everyone hopes you have a great week. Let's get on to what you want to say. Um, and it feels sometimes similar to Paul. It's like, oh, we can just skip the first two verses of Paul's letters because it's all the same. There's grace. There's some mercy, maybe peace thrown in there. Paul's writing to someone. None of it matters. Let's get to what Paul's talking about. But I think that if we take our time here, as we dive into the beginning here, we'll see that there is a lot that Paul packs in here for us before he gets to the body of his letter as we look at this sacred salutation. And he begins kind of this introduction to his letter. So you think about it like any good storyteller, any good, any good author, uh, the introduction is important. And perhaps one of the best, the best uh, people that I've seen at introducing are the authors of the Star Wars movies. I mean, these are not the best opening lines in any movie. It begins with this music, first of all, the score is outstanding. And as the music builds and you have this, what they call the opening crawl, those slanted words that kind of slowly go up. And I don't know what pace they determined the words would go up, but I'm like, listen, you should have talked to someone else because I'm having a hard time keeping up with this opening crawl up with these words. But you're reading the introduction of this movie. In the beginning of every Star Wars movie, it's the same, this opening crawl giving three paragraphs of background information leading up to this movie. They want to make sure you understand what has happened, some important information from the past, as well as laying out what you're about to see in the upcoming movie. And friends, Paul here in verses 1 and 2, honestly, is kind of his opening crawl to the letter of 1 Timothy. He wants you to know some important information about the past as well as laying out the themes that he's going to be unraveling um, and unpacking in this letter. And so like Star Wars has three paragraphs at the beginning of every single one of their movies, Paul may not have paragraphs, but he does here have three characters that he wants us to understand. And this is what we'll be looking at here in these two verses. Paul wants to make sure that we have an understanding of who Paul is. He gives us this in verse 1. Secondly, he wants us to have an understanding of who Timothy is. We see this in the first half of verse 2, verse 2a. That's what that little a means. It means the first sentence there of verse 2. And third, to have an understanding of who God is. We see this in the second half of verse 2. These are kind of the, the three opening paragraphs for Star Wars Paul, making sure we understand who Paul is, who Timothy is, and who God is. The first understanding who Paul is. Look back at verse 1. You heard Cindy read it earlier. Paul begins here by saying, uh, kind of customary, introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, if, you're, if you read through Paul's letters, you find this is a fairly common introduction for Paul. Paul, an apostle. So this is the first thing we see, understanding that Paul is an apostle of God. Now, apostles were people who lived with Jesus' ministry, saw him ascend, and then continued then that work that Jesus taught. So if you uh, remember at all Paul's story, you go, well, hold on. Paul wasn't there for Jesus' ministry. He wasn't along the road with him as the disciples. Uh, and in fact, then once Jesus ascended, Paul was one of the first persecutors of the church. So how can Paul be an apostle? Well, Paul may not have an, an encounter with Jesus during his three years of his earthly ministry, but Paul did have an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. As Paul's traveling to Damascus, Jesus himself shows up, knocks Paul off of his donkey and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
And so I love that. I always want to kind of pause there and point that out, that Jesus' question to Paul isn't, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? Paul, why are you persecuting this institution on earth, this religious organization? Jesus so closely associates himself with his church that he asked Paul this question, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he then grabs a hold of Paul's heart and commands him, commissions him to then take the gospel outside of Jerusalem and Israel to the whole Gentile world. And so this is Paul's then calling from Jesus. So he's kind of this unique apostle called by God, called by Jesus himself to take the gospel outside of Israel. And so Paul says that that's who I am. I am an apostle speaking with that kind of authority. And Paul knew that that era of the apostles was about to end. That There wasn't an apostolic succession like uh, some uh, traditions will teach. Paul knew that, hey, at the end, whenever these apostles die, this era is over. And so Paul's feeling here at the end of his ministry, this transition that's about to happen from these apostles that are planting churches, giving guidance, writing letters through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to then transitioning to local church leadership and guarding and carrying on that gospel message. So Paul's feeling that urgency. He says, this is who I am. I am an apostle by the command of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. So again, one of the things that's a little unique about this is Paul always says, I'm an apostle by God's will. See this in five of his other letters. That's his introduction. But here, there's again a uniqueness as Paul then here says that it's the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. You again kind of feel the urgency Paul has in saying, I'm an apostle by God's command to me. And so, Timothy, make sure you feel that same kind of authority that I am acting out of the command of God, that you feel that same kind of urgency uh, here in your ministry in Ephesus. You're kind of an extension of this apostolic ministry, Timothy, because this is who I am. And his authority comes from the command of God. Right, you see where Paul derives his authority from. He's an apostle by what? By the popular vote of the Christians in Jerusalem? No, he's, a command, he's an apostle by the command of God himself and of Christ Jesus, our hope. And you see Paul here, and he'll, he'll tease it out throughout the rest of his letter, equating God the Father and God the Son. Paul's highlighting the deity of Jesus. He's saying, this is how I'm an apostle, by God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. He's saying Jesus is, in fact, God himself. He's also called me. I'm not an apostle by the command of God and the council of Jerusalem. Not by the command of God and by the apostle Peter. He says, I am an apostle by the God our Savior, his command, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul says it's important you understand the authority I'm acting out of. It's an apostolic authority that has been given to me by God himself. He then transitions and moves then and saying, you have to not only understand who I am, to be able to receive this letter. We also have to understand who Timothy is. Understanding who Timothy is. We see this in the second verse. So Paul is an apostle. And secondly, then he writes to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now, Timothy's name pops up all over the New Testament. He was Paul's protege. Paul uh, stumbled upon him whenever Timothy was probably a teenager. We hear about him in Acts 16. 
Paul continues this relationship, discipling, mentoring Timothy, and eventually then takes him on his missionary journeys with him. And we see Timothy involved all over the place. He worked with Paul and Silas to help plant the Philippian, Thessalonian, and Corinthian churches. His name also appears at the beginning of Paul's letter to Philemon and the Colossian church. And so we see this young and massively influential Timothy now plays over the care of the church in Ephesus. Timothy is one of the most influential Christians in the first century. And Paul here refers to him to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Paul is saying, Timothy, I have poured my life into you. Again, the relationship here, Paul's probably in his 50s or 60s. Timothy's more than likely in his 30s. And Paul has discipled, taught, poured his life into Timothy so much so that Paul says, hey, Timothy, you're my adopted son in the faith. I think this would have been particularly meaningful for Timothy as Timothy's father was Greek, his mother was Jewish, so by Jewish law, he would have been an illegitimate son. And here Paul writes and says, Timothy, you are my true son, my true son in the faith. Paul poured his life out into him. And you can hear the affection in Paul's pen. Right? We, we, I think sometimes we think of Paul and we think about the guy that like, gets stoned and he gets left for dead and he's dragged outside the city and he gets back up and goes back in the city to preach the gospel and everyone gets saved and he's going through shipwrecks and uh, people are falling out of the window dead because he preached too long, but then he goes and raises that person back from the dead. And so Paul kind of has this edge to him and he's calling out Peter whenever Peter won't sit with a certain group of people. And Paul has this edge to him, right? But what's also important for us to see Paul also has this tenderness and affection to him. And I think it's a beautiful, again, portrayal of what true biblical masculinity looks like. It's the same kind of masculinity that Jesus has, tough and tender, able to be able to stand up for truth in the face of death and also write, as we see his letters to the Corinthians, write through tears, moved to tears because there's a love for people. And here he sees this affection of his true son in the faith, Timothy. And so not only has Paul poured his life into Timothy, but he will also later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, tell Timothy, hey, now that what you have, you go and pass it on to others who will then pass it on to others. Paul wants there to be this kind of chain of discipleship that happens. Paul knows the mission that he's been called to, to take the gospel to the world, can't happen in his lifetime. So Paul wants to make sure he's pouring into people who will then pour into people who will then pour into people. Paul knows he needs to do this because this is what Jesus told every single person to do that follows him, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That is Paul's commission. That is our commission. And so Paul pours his life into Timothy, his true son in the faith, and then tells Timothy to go and do the same. It's the exact same thing Paul does with Titus. In his other pastoral letter, he references Titus as his true son in the faith. And then in Titus chapter 2, he then says, Titus, now in the church that you're in, in Crete, these should be the kind of relationships that are happening in your local church. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this to Titus. He says, Older men should encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works and with integrity and dignity in your teaching. And Paul says, hey, there should be this kind of cross-pollination of older men and younger men, both in their life and the example that they live and what they're teaching. 
There should be, uh, it shouldn't be siloed off into separate services or different small groups or different churches of contemporary and traditional. They should actually be together having a relationship in which there is this discipleship that's continuing to happen. He says the same in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 about women. He says, in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so they may encourage the young women. So Paul's telling Titus, hey, these are the relationships that should be happening within the local church. It's the same kind of relationship that I have with you, Titus, and with you, Timothy. So Timothy, that which I've given to you, find faithful men and continue to pour out to them. Titus, you and other older men in the church in Crete, be an example and teach the younger men. And the older women, let them teach what is good and be an example to younger women. Let there be both life and teaching, both example and exposition for this discipleship, both to have open lives and open Bibles. These are the kind of relationships that we want to see here within our church. This is why these letters are so helpful, both as a pastor, but not just for pastors, for any Christian. It shows us how the church should be ordered. This is one of the biggest things that Paul's going to write to Timothy, as we'll see. But Paul's saying these are the kind of relationships that should happen. So as a church, we know that the, goodness, the goal is for these things to happen organically, but we know sometimes it's hard for these things to happen. So we've tried to build systems or kind of trellises um, for this kind of growth to be able to happen. And so we have community groups here, meet throughout the week in homes. Again, we purposefully don't have them um, segregated by age or by kind of hobby or what you may like for this very reason. We hope to see intergenerational relationships happening because there's just a difference. We see that um, people in their 30s, we maybe don't know everything. Maybe. The jury's still out. We'll see, but maybe we don't. And there's a certain kind of goodness that comes with being uh, sitting down with uh, Harry, who's in my community group, as he celebrated his 91st birthday, and hearing um, some of the stories that God has walked him through decades of. That's different from when I get together with my friends. And so we want to be able to create those kind of relations in our community groups. So they're about to finish up here next week, and they'll relaunch again in the fall. But if you want to join a community group, you can on the little Connect card, you can check uh, Interested in Community Groups, and we would love to be able to get you connected in those. We have also have D groups here, in which we get a smaller group of three to five people in the same gender reading through the Bible together, meeting every week uh, for 18 months to read through the Bible, kind of have this life-on-life relationship. If you're interested in that, again, we'd love to see kind of cross-pollination of age as well. And if you're interested in that, you can, on your Connect card, click Other, put D Groups, and we'd love to help be able to get you connected that way. Goodness, another really practical way to do this, what Paul has done to Timothy, and what Timothy is then called to do in his church, Titus is called to do in his church, is to be able to be involved with different ministries that we have here at the church. One in particular, we have a growing student ministry here at the church. We've got around 20 students that meet every Wednesday night. Um, And one of the needs that we have is for people out of high school to get involved and just build relationships with students Uh, and kind of this mentor kind of relationship, but also just a genuine relationship, right? You hear the way uh, Paul's relationship with Timothy was a true son, a genuine son in the faith. This wasn't just kind of a, uh, a, um, a formal relationship. This was a real friendship between Paul and Timothy. 
And we hope to see those happen with our students, both within our student ministry. But again, we don't want to silo off our student ministry to like be over in the corner that we don't ever talk about. And they don't ever get out with the rest of the churches, keep them over by themselves. We want them to be involved in our church, serving, coming to church on Sundays and building relationships with people in the church, both to be able to have these kind of relationships happening and also to be able to hopefully prepare students for what life in the church looks like. We've heard the incredible statistics of how many people graduate high school and then leave the church. We'll have nothing to do with it. And so the question is, what do we do then to stop losing students? As a church, I think the question isn't what are we doing to not lose students. I think the problem is that we never had them in the first place. We created maybe this place that people would come and play games, Xbox, whatever else. I guess I don't know what's cool nowadays, but whatever that is. Um, get together, have kind of these relationships Keep it cool. Make sure, oh, church is too boring. Let's not get them involved in church. Let's make sure things stay cool. And they graduate high school. And then what's next? Oh, church. Life, messy, boring church. Ordinary church. This is the regular life of what it means to be in a church. There's not this, you know, huge show and entertainment. It is life on life, as messy and as ordinary. But it's also glorious because it's the thing that God has designed to be able to carry on his gospel and reach the ends of the nations with the glory of his name. And so we commit ourselves to it and prepare ourselves to it. But if you have a heart for students, in particular wanting to see students raised up, um, then come get involved. We'd love to see more people involved with our student ministry, building relationships with our students and pouring into them to see, again, these kind of relationships happen. So if God has on your heart a desire to see students know, treasure, and obey Christ, then go talk to Garrett Wood after the service, or again, goodness, talking about the Connect card a lot, but you can, on the bottom of the Connect card, check other and put Grove students, and Garrett will reach out to you about how to get connected. Uh, we want to see these relationships happening more and more, because friends, we are not here to help you make friends. We are here to help you make disciples. That is our role as a church. That's what our understanding is. And so again, this is the commission that Jesus has called us to, to go, to make, and to teach. To go, make, and teach. This is our commission. So the questions that we asked in January, I'll uh, go back to them again to see how we are accomplishing and living that out, but answering these questions. Where is your mission field? Where are you going? Who is your one, the one person in your life that's near to you but far from God that you will take this gospel to this year, intentionally praying for and inviting them to the next right thing, looking to share the gospel with them? How will you form conscientious community in your life, real committed relationships and Christian friendships in your life, and how will you deepen your discipleship and the discipleship of those around you? Those are not optional questions as Christians that we get to kind of put off for later on in life when we get our act together Jesus says, hey, this is what everybody who follows me needs to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How are we doing? Go, make, teach. This was, this was the primary driver for Paul and what drove then his mission and his relationship with Timothy, his true son in the faith, to be able to see that mission fulfilled. So it's important we understand who Paul is, the apostle. It's important we understand who Timothy is, this true son in the faith who was discipled and mentored by Paul. 
But third, Paul also wants us to make sure in this greeting, in the sacred salutation, that we understand who God is. Paul spends a, a good bit of time making sure we understand who God is. And he does this by making sure we understand who he is and what he gives. Paul shows us here who he is and what he gives. And you see, there's four different words that Paul uses here to describe God. Two about God the Father and two about God the Son. Did you see him there in verses 1 and 2? He says to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, you see Paul putting this parallel saying God the Father, God the Son, they are one in the same. They are part of this triune uh, Godhead of, uh, of God. Jesus is in fact God. And so we have God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord, and back up in verse 1, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. These are the four words Paul gives us to understand who God is. Our Father, our Lord, our Savior, and our hope. Our Father, our Lord, our Savior, and our hope. Paul's describing God the Father, and he begins here. And it's important he begins here because how often how Jesus begins. He was teaching his disciples how to pray. I know Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, but he did teach them how to pray. And when he was teaching them how to pray, how did he begin that prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He begins with our Father. Other places throughout when Jesus is talking about who God is, his relationship to us, and how we are to approach him. You have the persistent widow who goes back to a judge and keeps nagging the judge over and over again, getting justice, and the judge is like, fine, I will do what you want me to do so that you'll just stop annoying me. And Jesus says, how much more will your God, if, if the judge knows how to give uh, justice, how much more will your Father in heaven give to you? He again, equates it to the fatherhood of God. Jesus wants us to have the lens, Paul wants us to have the lens, that when we approach God, that we are fundamentally, if you have been saved, you are fundamentally approaching your father. There's a lot about who God is. We need to make sure that we kind of keep in totality his character. God is holy. God is just. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. We need to understand that our relationship to him is seen fundamentally as we approach him. We approach our father. Jesus didn't say begin the prayer saying our holiness who art in heaven, our leader who art in heaven, or even our king who art in heaven. All those things are true, but Jesus wanted to make sure that we understood the lens when we approach God is that we approach our father. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that because sometimes we can feel like maybe God is distant. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God is doing things, kind of just throwing things into our life just to make us suffer and kind of go through hard things. And we, we wonder what God sees when he sees me. My friend, if you are a Christian, I'll tell you exactly what he sees. He sees his child. And we need to make sure that we understand that fundamentally. Warmth, tenderness, compassion, these are the words now in which God deals with you. Psalm 103, 13 is in the Old Testament. Right? Sometimes people can, this is a tangent, but here we go anyway. Sometimes people can try to like say there's two gods. There's the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. God of the New Testament is, is warm and kind and compassionate. God of the Old Testament, man, wrathful, mean, the different gods. 
So we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and hitch ourselves onto Jesus. And I say, man, that is just, you just hadn't read the Old Testament. And you also hadn't read the New Testament. Because let me tell you, I've read the New Testament, and I read about a Jesus in Revelation that comes back with a sword out of his mouth and tattoos on his thighs to judge the living and the dead. Jesus hadn't changed at all from who God is in the Old Testament. He is full of love, grace, and truth. But he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. This is his name in Exodus 34. It's the same name of Jesus in the New Testament. And so in the Old Testament, let's read the description of who God is in the Old Testament then in Psalm 103, 13, that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The author of the psalm points to a father to say, look at the way a, a father has compassion on his children. You'll begin to understand then the heart of God for his own. So I think about a time a few months ago, uh, Leah, my wife, was uh, having a long day, so I came home, was ready to be the hero. I was like, all right, listen, I'll take the kids. We'll go out on a walk. Four-year-old, two-year-old, I'll take them. We'll go out on a walk. You just relax. I've got it. No worries. We get the kids. We go out. We're walking around our neighborhood. My two-year-old's on a little bike that I'm pushing. My four-year-old wants to show me how fast she has become because she ate her vegetables that day to equate one, one to another. We have any Olympic athletes in here? That's the missing link in your training. Eat your carrots for lunch, apparently. So my four-year-old is wanting to show me how fast she is. So she begins to take off down the sidewalk and fails to see one of the concrete blocks was poking up just a little bit, and her toe caught as she was running. She went falling forward, scrapes her knee, her hands, a little bit on her forehead, too. It was the worst fall she's had yet. So she gets up and begins just crying. So I go, pick her up. We go home. I walk back inside, and I can just imagine, right, this is what happens when, when the kids go with dad. You walk back in like you're coming out of a war zone. Like this is, um, I hope you're feeling rested. Leah, you ready to, to tend to our children now? Um, the, does our laundry detergent able to get blood out of clothes? Anyway, uh, you're welcome. Um, but in those moments when she falls as her father, what do I do in those moments? I run to her, pick her up, and want to hold her and make sure she knows, I'm here, it's okay, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Because I want her to know the safest place in the world is in her father's arms. That's what I want her to know. And there's that compassion that fathers have for their children. And the author of the psalm and Paul here in 1 Timothy is saying, if you look at the way a father has compassion on their children, you'll begin to get a glimpse at God's heart and his disposition for you. That, that is the same disposition that God has as your father of compassion and tenderness and warmth. Who is he? He is God, our father. J.I. Packer um, uh, Anglican minister who's in uh, Canada recently passed away a few years ago. But he put it this way in his book, Knowing God. He said, Father is the Christian name for God. It's the name that God has given us to call him, our Father. Father is the Christian name for God. And our relationship with him is understood through that lens. So understanding who he is, he is God the Father. But secondly, we also see that he, we see um, that he is God our Savior. We see this in verse 1. God our Savior. The second name that we see. This was a common title that was given to God in the Old Testament as our Savior. It was in 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 106, Isaiah 43, 45, 49, 60, 63. A, a name that God gave to his people. I am God your Savior. 
And it helps teach this understanding that salvation belongs to the Lord and to him alone. He is the one who saves. We don't save ourselves. He is our Savior. Salvation belongs to him, not to us. He designed it. He executed it. He accomplished it. He applied it, and he will complete it. Is what we see, is what we understand in Philippians 1 and Romans 8. God is our Savior. And in saving us, he saved us from our greatest problem. Not a relational difficulty with others, not some political issue that's happening in our world, but he saved us from our greatest problem, which was our sin and our rebellion against him, which created then this separation between God and man and one in which we could never do anything to overcome. And there was now hostility, there was enmity, there was this beef between us and God because every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. And God in his holiness, as Garrett said earlier, a good king doesn't just overlook sin, doesn't overlook evil. And we've all then kind of held up our fists to God and said, no, I've got a better way. And we've all sinned and fallen short of that and deserve punishment for our rebellion. And ain't nothing we can do to fix it, but God is our savior. And he came and addressed that issue by becoming sin for us on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus dies in our place. He takes on the hostility of God so that we can now have peace with God. And there's this exchange that happens. Our sin is placed on him. He dies in our place. And his life and his righteousness is then credited to us. It's counted to us for all those who believe. And God fixes our greatest problem in saving us from our sin, reconciling us back to ourselves and handling our great problem, which is the problem of sin. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, put it this way. He said, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But God perceived that our greatest need involved sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, and our death. And so he sent us a savior. God the Father is also God our Savior. And then Paul turns then to the second person of the Godhead of Jesus and says that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We see our Father, our Savior, and also our Lord. And is what Paul says here at the end of verse 2, Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, saying Jesus is Lord is the same as saying that Jesus is God. This is Thomas's great confession at the end of John in John chapter 20. Verse 28, Jesus is risen from the dead. All the disciples see Jesus and believe, except for Thomas, right? There's doubting Thomas, which is a terrible nickname to get, by the way. Oh, here's all the, can't wait to meet all the disciples in heaven. And then, oh, there's doubting Thomas. Like, that's what you get. You get the beloved apostle John, right? That's a great nickname. And then doubting Thomas. Anyway, so that's who Thomas is. He doubts a lot. But Jesus shows up to him and says, Thomas, come here. Put your hands in the wounds. Put your hands in my side. When Thomas does it, this is his confession, my Lord and my God. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't correct him, right? There's people that will say Jesus isn't God. If Jesus isn't God in that moment, Jesus should go, oh, hey, Thomas, appreciate the love, man, but like, I'm not God. I'm not your Lord. I'm a good dude that just rose from the dead, but you know, not God. 
But Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus takes the worship. He takes the confession because it's true. Because he is, in fact, the Lord. And he is, in fact, our God. And so Paul is, you see Paul's heavy Christology here, his study of Christ, the study of Jesus. Paul is setting the themes, and he'll go into this in 1 Timothy, wanting to highlight who Jesus is. And he begins here by highlighting that Christ Jesus is our Lord. Elsewhere in Romans 10, Paul puts it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Paul knows the importance of this confession. Jesus, our Lord, he is God. You know, in a, in a non-religious sense, to be a Lord, right? I've watched a lot of British shows recently on Netflix and BBC, so I understand all about the British world. And you have lords over in this realm, in this area, people that live over there. And you have in these lords, they have certain authority over an area, whether it be an estate, whether it be a region, whether it be an entire country. And so in this sense, then applied to Jesus, him being our Lord, he doesn't just have a, a jurisdiction over a certain area of land, but he is in fact the Lord of everything. He is the sovereign one. The sovereign one who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the image of the invisible God who holds all things together because all things have been created by him, through him, and for him. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And one day, every eye will see, every mind will know, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess these three words. Jesus is Lord. And so Paul wants to make sure that Timothy, the church in Ephesus, and every Christian church after him knows who Jesus is. He's not merely a good man or an engaging communicator. He's more than just a social advocate or an enlightened philosopher. Jesus is God himself, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is our Lord. So what did Jesus do with all that authority and power and majesty? Friends, he laid it aside to die in your place, to defeat your enemy. And to promise to one day come back and make all things right again. And that's why Paul uses this final word to describe Jesus, our hope. This is our hope. See, in New Testament terms, hope is more than just a vague wish. It's just kind of crossing your fingers, hoping that something in the future might be true, whether you do or don't have any kind of probability. Like, oh, I, I wish that they'll build a Bucky's in Claremont's. It's just vague, wishful thinking, not based on facts at all. I hope that that's what's going to happen. But no, in the New Testament, hope is a confident expectation of the fulfillment of God's promise. Hope is a confident expectation. There's no wavering. There's no fingers crossing. There's no wishing. There's no looking at the statistics and seeing if it might play out. It is confident. It is expectant. And it's based on the fulfillment of God's promises. We say he's been faithful then, we know that he'll be faithful now. Everything that he has done in the past, we know that he will do in the future what he has said. So much so that Hebrews 11 refers to hope this way, that it is a reality. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. It is a reality, a confident expectation based on the fulfillment of God's promises. So friends, Christian hope isn't based on a change of circumstances or a fingers crossed kind of wish based on percentages 
Christian hope does not have percentages. Christian hope has a name, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our hope on a person. He will return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will eradicate the brokenness in this creation. And he will live with us forever, overcoming death, hell, and sin once and for all. That is his promise, and he is our hope. And friends, that hope is alive. It's not buried in a tomb somewhere. It's not waiting to see what's going to happen. He is alive. He is reigning. He is seated in the right hand of the throne of God, and he is one day coming back. That hope is alive. So Paul helps us understand who God is by seeing who he is, our Father, our Savior, our Lord, and our hope. But he also helps us understand who God is by seeing what he gives. Quickly, we see in verse 2 again. He gives us grace, he gives us mercy, and he gives us peace. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's wanting Timothy and all those who are reading low to understand who God is, know who he is, but also know him by what he gives. He gives grace, he gives mercy, he gives peace. Paul doesn't say that, hey, Timothy, peace will come whenever you get um, some kind of treatise or agreement with your surrounding areas. Paul says, no, peace comes, grace comes, mercy comes from God. It flows from him. Grace, when God gives us things that we don't deserve, unmerited favor. Mercy, whenever God doesn't give us what we do deserve, when he shows us mercy, whenever we rebel against him and he instead shows us mercy. And peace, this idea of shalom, a peace that now exists with God and with others. It is given to all those who are in him as it's found from him. He is the fount of every blessing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They originate from him. They flow from him. They're not based on circumstances. But friends, grace and mercy and peace are extended to you through Jesus Christ regardless of the circumstance you're in right now. It's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples in John 16. So he's getting ready to uh, walk to the cross the next day. He tells them this in verse 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Where is that peace found? In Christ. In me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Well, hold on, Jesus. You said you could have peace. How can peace and suffering go hand in hand? How can those two things coexist? My peace can only exist when everything's going good around me. Whenever my friendships are great, whenever my family's doing all right, whenever there's no issues or tragedy around me, there's no financial strain, whenever there's nothing happening uh, in the world, socially or politically, that's when I can have peace. How can you now say I can have peace even when they're suffering. And this is what he says. He says, because you can be courageous, for I have overcome the world. Jesus says, you can have peace because your peace isn't found out there. It's found in me. So what that means, no matter what you're walking through, when we come back to him, that there may be sorrow in this world and we may walk through suffering, but there is still the ability to rejoice, to find joy, to have peace and contentment because it's not tied to our circumstances, it's tied to our Savior. It's found in him. Grace, mercy, and peace come from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this sacred salutation sets the stage for the rest of the letter to Timothy. 
who Paul is, an apostle called and commanded and sent to take the gospel to the Gentiles, who Timothy is, his true son in the faith, is now continuing that mission to go and make disciples, and who God is, our Father, our Savior, our Lord, and our hope. These themes of mission, salvation, and right doctrine, particularly dealing with Jesus, are the major themes that Paul continued to develop in these letters. So as we begin this journey through the rest of the year, through First and Second Timothy, friends, remember your missionary calling. Remember your saving God. Remember your loving Father. And remember your living hope. Let's pray. God, we are amazed at your grace. God, that you do extend grace, mercy, and peace to all those that know you, and we can find them in you. God, turn our hearts now to you and help us to see and remember where that peace was purchased. God, that it was purchased on that cross. As you then were crushed for our iniquities, Jesus in our place. God, help us to walk out of here then living with that kind of mentality to make that name known and that we can continue the mission that you've called us to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.